Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, Helen, Chris, and Chris are going to talk about Boris, Keir, and competence. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas, where you can read elegant and expansive essays on every subject imaginable. From Amir Srinivasan on pronouns to James Meek on the WHO, from Pankaj Mishra on Anglo-America to Catherine Rundell on the Greenland Shark. Get 12 issues in print and online, that's half a year of the LRB, for just £12, with the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. So it's a great pleasure to have what I think of as the original Talking Politics panel today, Helen Thompson, Chris Brooke, Chris Brickerton. We're all in different rooms, inevitably, but it still feels like old times. And we're going to talk about questions of competence. Does it matter? I think it must matter whether this government is incompetent, but why does it matter and which kinds of incompetence are likely to do this government most harm? I thought maybe we could start with the phrase that's associated at the moment with one particular form of incompetence in relation to Boris Johnson's leadership and this government's behaviour, and that is U-turns, because there has been a lot of chopping and changing, particularly in the policy and the rules around the COVID virus and how we're all meant to behave. U-turns clearly matter, because we can all think of examples of political U-turns that have done politicians and political parties a lot of harm. I'm not at all clear in my own mind that these are U-turns and the government's line is that this is just what you do when you're dealing with an unprecedented challenge and you are inevitably sometimes making it up as you go along. Are these actual U-turns? Uh, well, I would say, I mean, there obviously have been some U-turns that are not necessarily related to the direct management of the pandemic, but are sort of somehow connected. But something like that letter by Rashford about uh, free school meals the government U-turned on that. But I think we have to separate these sorts of U-turns from the changes in policies that come from attempts to follow scientific advice, which itself has been changeable throughout the pandemic. So I think there are some U-turns, but there are also some changes in policy that seem to me inevitable if you try and follow evidence that is being accumulated as you as you govern. Because in a way, U-turns and competence don't necessarily go together. I mean, incompetence is one thing, but the kinds of U-turns that voters in particular seem to punish politicians for are manifesto commitments that were dressed up as principles, sort of perhaps the most obvious example is the Lib Dems and Nick Clegg on university tuition fees, where a commitment has been made. And what this is, is a breach of trust. It's a breach of trust rather than evidence that the politicians don't know what they're doing. I think that's absolutely right. I think the problem with the language of U-turns is people very specifically reference it to the early Thatcher period and Mrs. Thatcher's famous speech where she said, the lady's not for turning. And what was going on there was that she was specifically referencing the Heath U-turns of the previous decade. There was a real issue there, which was that the Heath government was elected in 1970 on what you know the manifesto looks proto-Thatcherite, but the Heath government did not stick to that line in 
government. And so Mrs. Thatcher, elected in 1979 with a cabinet full of the old guard from the, the Heath era, there was a real question of whether she ran into difficulty, whether her instincts would turn out to be Edward Heath's instincts or not. And she made a symbolic, but I think more than symbolic, break with the Heathite legacy. And ever since then, the lady is not for turning, that language of U-turns has persisted in politics, but it's got ever increasingly distant from that original context in which I think it did and does make a great deal of sense. So now I think we don't talk so much about U-turns, we talk about broken promises. The significance of the Lib Dems' broken promise on tuition fees was that they'd made such an explicit appeal to student voters at the 2010 general election, and they'd been very successful at hoovering up the, the votes of students in the UK. And that's why the U-turn, the broken promise, the reverse policy hurt so much. But in general, I'm not sure the language of U-turns is especially useful. We're 40 years on from... Um, the early Thatcher period. Helen, do you think that if it isn't a question of U-turns, but it is a question of competence and some of the chopping and changing that the government has been doing is because some of it is inevitable, but some of it is because the policy is not fully thought through, that the sense I get from Johnson and the people around him is they think that all comes out in the wash. The people are broadly tolerant of that. Do you think they are? Well, I think it goes back to what Chris was talking about and the question about why U-turns might matter and what they mean in relation to um, to competence. So if we go back to the, the Thatcher case, when she was actually saying those words, she was actually you know, engaging in a really quite significant U-turn in macroeconomic policy that you could argue was comparable, albeit in a different way, to the one that Heath had made or indeed the one that Labour had made in 1976 when in going to the IMF for a loan to... Um, support um, Sterling. But what Thatcher wanted to do was to disguise the U-turn that she made because she had come to the conclusion that this, what looked to the voters like chopping and changing in economic policy, starting in one direction and then going off in another direction, looked like it was incompetence. And so although that she needed for pragmatic reasons to change the policy, she wanted to look like she was much more competent than the governments that had come before her. So I think that the lesson in some sense to take out of that is, is that she came to the conclusion that competence really does matter and that that does have some value independent of the question of trust for voters. I think the difficulty for the Johnson government um, has been is, is that what looks like understandable U-turning, if we're going to use that language of adaptation to changing circumstances where the pandemic's concerned, comes on top of a perception that the government itself, not least the Prime Minister himself, isn't entirely on top of what is going on. So the competence issue is what's actually coming back to the surface. And just briefly, the Conservative Party's reputation for competent economic management was destroyed mm. when they when they were forced out of the ERM. And in a way, that wasn't my memory of it. It wasn't particularly described as a U-turn. It was something more than that. It was occasionally a government and indeed a party is almost destroyed by a symbolic act of what is perceived as so it's sort of incompetence and loss of control. And it feels to me that those two things, it, it starts to get really dangerous when it feels like you have presented yourself, as this government has tried to, as being in control. And the voters suddenly realise that you're not in control at all. I mean, we haven't reached that yet. We haven't had one of those for a long time. Is that right, Helen? I mean, you well, know I about this. There's two things with the ERM moment. The first is is that it came in such 
you know, complete contrast that I mean by it, the pulling out of the, the leaving the exchange rate mechanism on Black Wednesday to the rhetoric that John Major had used all summer, which was all about turning sterling into the hardest currency in Europe. I mean, it was preposterous rhetoric at the time. So he had raised the stakes incredibly high over the ERM in the months preceding Black Wednesday and then fell flat on his face about it. But it also destroyed the Conservatives' reputation for competence so thoroughly because the way that the Parliamentary Conservative Party reacted to Black Wednesday was to turn against the Maastricht Treaty. And the Maastricht Treaty hadn't been ratified at that point. And so that meant that the Conservative government under Major had to spend basically a year you know, in parliamentary siege warfare against its own backbenchers and getting the treaty ratified, which exposed all the divisions within the Conservative Party about the European Union. So it wasn't just Black Wednesday itself and the ERM issues. It was its knock-on consequences from Maastricht. I want to ask you a question about something that's nothing to do with the pandemic, I assume, but may become a big political issue going forward. It's it's about something that's happening today. So the internal market bill, and today is Wednesday, we haven't got to it yet today, but the internal market bill is being published. And it is going to renege, it seems, on some aspects of the withdrawal bill. And there was a sort of confession in Parliament yesterday by the government that it would be doing something that in a narrow and technical sense was illegal under the terms of international law. Now, again, I don't think the language of U-turns is much good in describing this, but what is that? And that also may possibly or possibly not be a question of competence, but it's possibly something else too. Do you have a sense, any of you, of what the significance might be of tinkering with the withdrawal bill? I think, yes, I think there's lots of things to say about um, what's happening today. But I think just to backtrack slightly, it's striking that the discussion around competence has become so central at the moment. We shouldn't forget that the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, was generally thought of before becoming Prime Minister and looking at his political career in general as a kind of charlatan, a kind of clownish figure, this sort of reckless populist as far away from what you might think of as a serious and competent politician. And I think some of that is what really informs the discussion today around the competence of the the government. There's a kind of smug, I told you so attitude about Boris Johnson, that he's getting his comeuppance now that he's been faced with a really serious crisis. And the problem with competence is that the question is, well, what are you judging it against? There's, there's always a counterfactual of would so-and-so have done better had he been or had she been leading during the crisis? That's very difficult to establish. So I think the backdrop to, to the discussion is inevitably partisan. And there's a kind of sniping and sort of trying to get back at Johnson and attacking for his lack of seriousness on the part of his critics. I think what's going on with the, the Brexit legislation is rather different. I think it's to do with the dynamics of no deal. It's to do with taking a hard look at what existing legislation presents the UK government with in terms of freedom of manoeuvre in the event of no deal. And it doesn't seem to me a coincidence that the government's acting now when no deal seems to be more likely than ever has been. So it seems to me that that's what's driving it rather than what we're sort of describing as as U-turning or or questions simply of, uh, of competence. This is more a kind of substantive question of getting policies right and in place in the event of something happening which had been, you know, 50-50 up until now, but I think it's probably more likely now. But is the original agreement, the withdrawal bill itself, which this government negotiated and then essentially went to the country on in an election, 
is the decision now to start essentially reneging on aspects of it, not potentially, I mean, there, there's a question about what people want from Brexit, what they fear and so on. But just on that fundamental question, when do governments get damaged by the perception that they have rode back on something that they committed to either out of principle, or they simply took it to the voters and said, this is what we want to be elected on? Is there not potential for damage there? It's slightly early days. I'd like to be able to sort of see more carefully and closely what's uh, what they're trying to achieve. But my impression is that there's a willingness to take the hit in terms of giving the impression of reneging on prior commitments, but that the concern is that in the event of a no deal, the UK government doesn't find its hands as firmly tied as it would be under the existing agreements, particularly around issues of customs and state aid. And it just wants to tweak legislation so that it's a little bit freer in that respect. Now, that's, I think, the purpose, whether that's seen as a as a fundamental breach of international obligations that will ripple throughout the UK's foreign relations, I think that's that's less clear. I think that the difficulty for the, the government is twofold. On the one hand, if it goes ahead with this internal market bill in the case of there not being a, a trade agreement with the European Union when the transition period comes to an end, then it obviously opens a, a huge flank for criticism about the government thinking that it's above international law. And I think that would be a you know a big risk for any any government to take, including in the way in which it conducts its foreign policy when it's trying to get other countries, not least China, where Hong Kong's concerned, to uphold international agreements. I think that if you situate it back in the context of Brexit, it's really the the consequence of how boxed in the government was, the, the Johnson government was when it first came into power, because the first withdrawal agreement couldn't get through the House of Commons. The Ben Act ensured that it wasn't possible for the government to pursue a no deal option then. So it was left with trying to get some concessions on a withdrawal agreement that it didn't like and get that through the the House of Commons and then hold a general election to try to put the, the Brexit issue to rest. But it's now in the position where it's possible, quite possible, that I wouldn't say inevitable, that there isn't going to be a trade agreement. And it's it's back with the problem of the fact that from its point of view that the withdrawal act was never very satisfactory. And they had to they had to pretend that it was more satisfactory than it was, and I think in some sense, precisely because the government won't want to go down this road, that it means that there is still some prospects of a, of a trade agreement being reached. Certainly, not anything like likely, highly likely. I mean by by that, but it but it's still possible because the No Deal road involves risks for the government, both on the international law side on and on the UK Union side. And I realise I've lapsed back. I've sort of I'm back in 2019. I'm calling it the withdrawal bill, and it's the withdrawal yeah. act, isn't it? It is actually yeah. law now. That's one of the issues, isn't it? It is law. They're changing the law. This is one of those things, though, where I can't really see it getting much traction with the general public, with public opinion, and so on. And I think we saw that yesterday in Keir Starmer's response to the episode. Yesterday, it was entering around the resignation of Jonathan Jones, the head of the government's legal department, the so-called Treasury Solicitor. And there was a great deal of harumphing from legal commentators about the significance of this and people wondering whether Lord Keane, the Scottish Advocate General, would resign and shouldn't Suella Braverman consider her obligation to the rule of law and so on. That's clearly whistling in the dark. But obviously, this is the kind of issue where 
Keir Starmer, with his roots in the law, would have strong views of his own. But when he was invited to put them yesterday in an interview, he didn't. And that's partly because he doesn't want to walk into the government's trap it wants to set for him of being able to paint him as a wishy-washy human rights lawyer, Romaniac, etc., etc. But it's also because there must be a political calculation that public opinion is never going to get especially exercised about some pretty technical legislation about the details of the withdrawal agreement from last year. It feeds into a broader story about the duplicity of the government and its inability to function especially well on the international stage and reasons why people shouldn't trust it and so on. But the opposition is never going to get to rouse the public in defence of the the black letter text of the withdrawal agreement as it was signed last year. It doesn't work like that. And of course, that's one of the reasons why there's so much coverage of the quite often quite small chopping and changing in the rules around how we're all meant to behave in the pandemic, because we can understand them because they impact us every single day. Let's come back to Keir Starmer in a second. The other aspect of this, and it relates to questions of competence, is the pandemic has revealed some big differences in both presentation and some in policy, or at least in day-to-day decision-making between the Westminster government and the devolved governments. And Nicola Sturgeon in particular, it seems to me, has made a big pitch for being more competent. And she's quite good at the theatre of competence. She's quite good at conveying that even if we don't know exactly what it is that she's doing, it feels more competent. It's not hard to feel more competent than Boris Johnson. But the critics of the SNP will point out that their record in government does not stand up on the whole on many issues to a competence test. And this is just theatre. And even around the pandemic, there's a big disagreement, and a lot of it is partisan, as to whether the Scottish government has done better in any particular aspects, or whether it's just playing games. Is that because the union, and we're going to, I'm sure, talk about this a lot more on this podcast over the months, maybe years to come, is the politics around the union through the pandemic and this question of competence, is there a coming apart there? Is there at least a a window for the SNP to push this as part of its case as it moves towards another referendum? Well, I think that what's certainly the case is that Nicola Sturgeon has, in appearances, had a a good pandemic. I don't quite like using that language and that she has worked pretty hard in, in many respects to cultivate her differences from Westminster. And as you say, David, to make a claim that the Scottish government has been more competent than the, the Westminster government. I mean, I think when you look at the facts, it's a, it's a pretty disingenuous claim and doesn't stand up to much um, scrutiny. But what is certainly the case is is that there has been some shift in Scotland in favour of independence during the months of, of the, the pandemic and that there are considerable problems for all the other parties other than the SNP in next year's Scottish Parliament elections and that you know a big majority for the, the SNP in those elections is going to lead to a, a lot of pressure for a referendum that may now be more difficult to avoid than than the Westminster government thought was the case after the last general election. So regardless of what's gone on in the competence issue, we're not, I think, in the same political space where the Union with Scotland's concerned as we were before the pandemic started. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Chris, Brooke, do you think that competence could become a central question in the politics around another Scottish independence referendum because last time what became known as Project Fear it turned on a number of things but the the thrust of it was that Scotland would be exposed as an independent nation because in a way I mean this was in the background I think that it would simply its ability to be well governed under those circumstances was too risky and reassurance is crucial. I mean, reassurance is a crucial part of the case for Scotland being able to thrive as an independent nation. And that does seem to be a big part of what the SNP has tried to do in government in Scotland, at least project over time the sense that we can do this. I think that's right. And I think there's a backstory here that goes back to the earlier referendum, which is that some of the partisans of independence, some of the commentators around the time of the earlier referendum tried to counter the argument that independence would lead to a great deal of instability by saying, no, it's precisely by remaining part of the United Kingdom that Scotland will face an unstable future. And a lot of people discounted that argument at the time, but it's an argument that does seem to be vindicated in light of subsequent events, that the referendum in Scotland in some ways was the beginning of the permanent political crisis that the United Kingdom has been engulfed in that goes through the 2015 general election and the 2016 referendum and the 2017 general election and so on and so on and so on right down to the present. And in that circumstance, for the SNP to be able to say, well, you know, we did argue that the continuing association with England, continuing dominance of Westminster parties was going to make Scotland more precarious, more vulnerable, more unstable. Our claim looks as if it has been vindicated in light of subsequent events. And it's very convenient for the nationalists because the Scottish National Party it is a nationalist movement. It is a nationalist party. It does make nationalist arguments. And nationalism is still an ideology, whatever you want to call it, that divides opinion very sharply, nationalist politics in general, not specifically with an eye on Scotland. But in Scotland, there's always been a very powerful current within uh, the politics of Scottish nationalism that argues that it's not like those other nationalist parties. This isn't ethnic nationalism. This isn't a politics of of bigotry and so on. It's a politics of uh, civic inclusiveness and competence in government and so on. So all these, I think, do feed into exactly the pitch that the Scottish nationalists want to make to the to the Scottish electorate at what it is expecting will be a, a fairly imminent second independence referendum and one it's increasingly confident of winning. I wonder whether the, the issue of the pandemic is, is, has been decisive here, though. I think Certainly, it's allowed Sturgeon to put this gloss of competence onto her her record of recent months. But the way Chris Brooke put it, as I think is right, it's this 
permanent political crisis, I think was the phrase you used, Chris, um, that's been running for a while now, uh, that's affected really, I think, the relations, not not of perception of competence, but really fundamentally of trust with regards Westminster and what people in Scotland really think about the nature of the, the union. And Brexit here, I think, and the process of Brexit and the current situation is is extremely important. So I think the, the pandemic has sort of accelerated some of those things, but it's really these events of the last few years, the political events of the last few years that I think are are pushing Scotland in this in this direction and do change the kind of debate that would be had in another referendum and independence and life as independent Scotland would be presented in a rather different light. But that's because of, I think, the events, particularly since 2016. I think that there is something where the pandemic really has changed things, and that is is that the status quo was a a model, a serious model before the pandemic. But that model has had now, if you like, to spring into action and supposedly govern this multinational state with devolved government. And the government of Westminster has had to act as the English government. And that is not what it's had to do before, because health and education are devolved matters. And they've risen completely to the top, not in a legislative sense, but in an emergency sense. And so what we are left with uh, is a situation in which we have governance arrangements during this pandemic that don't really have any constitutional basis. And in that sense, I think that regardless of the Scottish situation, the status quo can't continue. And that actually, though, is to the SNP's advantage. But but the pandemic could have, I think, been a celebration of devolution, if you like. It would have allowed uh, the different parts of the United Kingdom to conduct their business based on the powers that they have. And you're right, Helen, that we've seen the different governments take decisions in slightly different ways and at a different pace. But why would that then raise questions about the the union as a whole rather than simply show that devolution works and that there are certain devolved powers that governments in different parts of the United Kingdom can exercise you know successfully and differently i think it's the broader sort of political landscape that makes us question the union so much not the 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 dynamics if you like of the pandemic itself but we're not supposed to have devolved government in england and that's the, that's what's changed and we've seen that we have but to have you know Scotland or Wales making decisions about lockdowns that are slightly different from England, that is devolution in 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 operation, isn't it? Why would that then raise questions about the future of the the union in the way that it tends to? Because Helen, think... are, you, are you saying that what has happened in the last few months is the thing that never quite seems to happen in British politics, which is English politics is something that people recognise and impacts on their lives rather than just some idea or even some constitutional question. That thing has become more tangible, finally? Yes, it had to because of the fact that health is a a devolved issue, but it's not devolved to England as such. It's devolved to Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland when the devolved institutions are, are working in Northern Ireland. But there was no constitutional or administrative basis for having English government. But that is what that this pandemic has produced. So when the pandemic is over, and let's hope it will be over at some point, and say that recedes and, and we're left with this landscape where politicians have had to behave in ways that technically don't fit the constitutional arrangements that we have, but de facto in an emergency had to be done. What's the legacy of that? Does it not fade to? How does that then It it might fade in, I mean, I'm not sure whether it does fade, but in certain circumstances, you might imagine that it could. But I don't think one of those circumstances is going to be when that union is facing a significant secessionist issue from one part of it. 
and where there are other issues in regards to the future of the union in in relation to Northern Ireland, because we're talking about a, a, an unstable constitutional situation anyway, which we have then sort of changed through this crisis, pandemic crisis, in, into something else again, and which at the moment, the present arrangements don't actually have democratic legitimacy. And yet in Scotland, and Scottish politics is so different just in the coverage it gets in England from English or UK politics. So Scottish politics has its own dynamic now that people who don't live in Scotland only pick up on occasionally. But it is true that the weakness in government, the weakness of the record in government of the SNP for its opponents tends to revolve around issues of health and education. I mean, that is actually, insofar as I'm able to grasp it from the outside, that seems to be their weak points, particularly education. There's a lot of criticism relative to the rest of the UK. And it is about the incompetence. It's also about some questions of ideology, but it's broadly a question of competence. So there is, if what this has done is to highlight the fact that we do have now separate forms of government on questions of health and education for Scotland and for England, that doesn't necessarily work to the advantage of the SNP, does it? No, I don't think it necessarily works to the advantage of the SNP, but it it does mean that the, the question of like how we're going to carry on with the constitutional administrative politics that we have isn't going to go away. So let's come back to Keir Starmer then. If this government is incompetent, and in some respects I think it is, and it's not just about Boris Johnson, I mean there is the perennial rumbling in the press that this is the weakest cabinet we've ever seen and where are the people who actually know how to get stuff done but that is often said of many cabinets it's like people complaining that tv used to be better and then they look at what used to be on tv and they realize it wasn't but there is an air of incompetence around this government and Keir Starmer projects as well as being a lawyer a certain kind of competence in opposition, particularly in contrast to his predecessor, Jeremy Corbyn. So there is a real question, I think, about whether you can use the issue of competence in opposition as your primary lever to get the government out. It does seem, and I think Corbyn showed this in some respects, that oppositions can be destroyed by the appearance of incompetence, but can they win power through competence? And the criticism of Keir Starmer is that he is a kind of bloodless lawyer and competence. You, you need to stand for something, not just not being useless. Do you think there's a risk, there's a trap here that the competence issue becomes too much of what he's focused on? There is a risk, but I think there's something else going on here too, which is that the opposition is not in an especially good place to set the agenda or make the running itself. And opposition is always reactive, but it's particularly reactive now. And that's partly because the Labour Party did receive a heavy defeat in the 2019 election. And they do have to have a lot of internal conversation about what to do and how to do it and the extent to which they're going to change direction on policy and so on and so on. But also over the next year or so, a number of very important decisions will be made um, that will then shape the pattern of politics for the rest of the parliament. Is there going to be a trade agreement with the European Union or not? Is the politics of the uh, around the internal market bill are also bound up with questions about whether Britain outside the EU will pursue the kind of um, global Britain free trading utopia or whether it will be 
uh, the world of massive state aid for tech companies and the sort of following Dominic Cummings fantasies and so on. And as the opposition moves towards the next general election, it has to tailor its policy package and its messaging and its general rhetoric around how this is a response to what government is actually doing. Starmer can't, I mean, I agree that there is a kind of vacuum around Starmer at the moment, but I think he does need to see the government carving its own path before he's in a position to shape Labour's direction. The particular risk I think he runs on the competence side of things, it works very well against Boris Johnson, obviously, but of course, at any point, the Conservatives can get rid of Boris Johnson and replace him with let's say, Rishi Sunak, against whom the competence charges wouldn't work to anything like the same extent, certainly not given his current public image. And we shouldn't underestimate the capacity of the Conservative Party to do that. Uh, this parliamentary Conservative Party has has uh, had great fun removing its leaders over the last few years. And you might think, oh, well, Boris Johnson's got a majority of 80. He's much safer than a leader like Theresa May ever was. But then we shouldn't forget that the last time the Conservatives had a big majority after the 1987 election, that was the parliament that did for Mrs Thatcher and did for Mrs Thatcher via a cabinet and backbench rebellion against the authority of the election winning leader. So I think there are risks in Starmer pursuing the the competent strategy, but partly it is dictated by the circumstances that what matters for Starmer is the general election in 2024. And things will be very different by then. And Labour has to have a political appeal uh, and a political strategy that will appeal to the electorate then. What happens now, by contrast, is much less important. I think Starmer is probably quite self-conscious as well, to be honest, about playing this particular card. It is such an important part of his political persona and has been an important part of his appeal up until now and currently. But... The danger, I suppose, is that you play up the the competence dimension so much that you end up being essentially a a manager or a technocrat or a civil servant. You're good at sort of policy delivery, but you don't really have much to say about where you want the country to, to go, a sense of a political vision. So I think Starmer, I think certainly in the years to come, can continue to convey this sense of competence. But what will be decisive, I think, when it comes to an election and whether he can win it or not is whether he can actually produce some sort of vision. And that, I think, is much more challenging, but I think that's more decisive in the longer term. Helen, do you think there is a difference between this seen as Boris Johnson's government of relative incompetence and this seen as a broader Conservative government and a Conservative cabinet? I mean, Rishi Sunak's popular at the moment and giving people cheap meals went down quite well. But he's got some really tough decisions to take. He's relatively untested. Politics can get a lot harder for him between now and whenever, if it ever happens, he becomes prime minister. Is there a risk for the Conservative Party that they think the incompetence is Johnson's and if they got rid of him, that would deal with the problem? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think we have to recognise is is that competent government, even semi-competent government, isn't going to be on offer from really anywhere at the moment because the problems are far too difficult across a whole range of issues for for there to be much competence. So if we just take the economy, it's going to be um, crisis management for the foreseeable future. Now, I think that in some sense that what Starmer's doing is quite astute with the competence issue because on 
the one hand he's trying to quite quickly as quickly as he can draw a line between Labour under Corbyn and Labour under him and say look it's not that Labour Party that you didn't vote that enough of you anyway didn't want to vote for in in 2019 it's it's something else um, again you know and after all competence was quite a lot of what Blair wanted to do in sort of demarcating new Labour from the past. The difficulty is is that Blair became leader at a time when the economic environment was very benign, certainly compared to what it had been in the previous decade and what it has been over the the last decade. So coming along and saying, okay, we'll manage the economy more competently than the shambolic major government came to do was quite an easy political move to make. But that move isn't going to be open to Starmer. And so I think that what he's doing is is simply biding his time. And it it isn't clear yet what the next election is going to be fought around. So Labour, under his leadership, is just going to sit in there, I think, and and see how things develop. And that will also include, as Chris has said, the question about whether the Conservative Party will actually still be led by Boris Johnson by the time the next election arises. And on that question, whether they would get rid of him. So I remember the podcast that we did when it was clear he was going to become Prime Minister, but before he was, I think it was called Who is Boris Johnson, where we tried to work out on the basis of what he had done before, what kind of Prime Minister he might be. So he was a pretty, I think even he would admit, he was a pretty incompetent Foreign Secretary. I mean, there's this other thing, which is just sort of putting your foot in your mouth. And given being Foreign Secretary, there is some element of diplomacy involved. He wasn't particularly well suited to it. and He didn't get much done. He was a more successful, in some respects, mayor of London. He certainly wasn't destroyed by his incompetence as mayor of London, but he delegated a lot. And he seemed possibly to be one of those politicians who was a sort of at one remove from a team of much more competent people and was the front man for a, a more successful backroom operation. But is it possible that you can't do that under our form of politics? Because when people in the cabinet seem to be more competent than the prime minister, the prime minister, unlike the mayor of London, who's not going to be removed and replaced by one of his underlings. But the British prime minister is constantly, I mean, every memoir you read of any prime minister, even Blair, even at the most successful point of Blair's career, they're constantly frightened that someone in their cabinet is going to outshine them. And you're vulnerable as a prime minister under a parliamentary system. Presidents aren't, mayors aren't, but prime ministers are. I can't decide on this. Is Johnson genuinely vulnerable to Rishi Sunak for that reason? Yes, I think he is. Or rather, I think there are a lot of um, imponderables and we don't know, it's hard to gauge exactly what the enthusiasm around Rishi Sunak amounts to. But I think that is right. And I think part of the way you can see Johnson's understanding that he's in a radically different game is in this reflexive move he pulls all the time, which is that there's going to be some headline in the Daily Telegraph saying, you know, Boris Johnson takes control of X. And it's always, you know, as with everything in the Telegraph, pretty much, it's it's a kind of spin, it's a kind of rhetoric. The the substantive policy never seems to change that much. It's talk about how Johnson gets a grip. But the rhetoric is all in that direction of central oversight by the prime minister, the prime minister taking control, the prime minister getting a grip, everything falling into his hands. And that's out of a recognition that the prime minister is the central player 
And there's no real space for the prime minister to stand up and say, well, actually, you know, even though we're in a massive crisis involving Brexit and the pandemic and so on, the important thing here is I've got a team of ministers and I delegate things to them and they they deal with things. Part of the issue with Johnson's ministers is they're so often simply creatures of his own politics. I mean, take someone like Gavin Williamson, who in more normal circumstances would have resigned as education secretary following the the A-level fiasco. But there doesn't seem to have been any serious question about that because Boris Johnson wants him as the education secretary and he values a certain kind of loyalty over a certain kind of competence in, in, in office. What's interesting about Sunak is he doesn't quite fit that template. That, that's to say, on the one hand, he is absolutely Johnson's creation in the sense that he was a middle-ranking junior minister and reasonably obscure to the British public before he was suddenly appointed Chancellor of the Exchequer to replace the departing Sajid Javid. But he seems to have acquired a sense that he is an independent actor from the Prime Minister. When Javid resigned, remember, the issue was over the um, centralisation of the political advisers between number 10 and number 11, and the idea that the Chancellor's political advisers would be answerable to Dominic Cummings in number 10. And Sajid Javid said he wouldn't stand for that. People said when Sunak was appointed that he would be the creature of number 10 in the way that Johnson and Cummings wanted. People don't seem to say that now. And the Treasury does seem to be functioning as uh, an independent centre of power in the way that it always traditionally has in British government. And one of the old maxims of British politics is, is never bet against the Treasury. And Sunak is now the the political representative of the Treasury. So who knows how it's going to play out, but I do think he's in a different position vis-a-vis Johnson than an awful lot of Johnson's other ministers. And he is an obvious focal point now for people who imagine a different political leadership in the Conservative Party. Boris Johnson has done what he was hired to do, which was win the election. It makes a great deal of sense if Conservative MPs start to think about what life after Boris Johnson looks like. And to finish, since you mentioned him, the, the poster child for this government's incompetence is Gavin Williamson. He's had a pretty rough couple of months. But I think it's true that lots of governments have had cabinet ministers who, often for just a passing phase, become the poster child for incompetence. And sometimes they got rid of and sometimes they're not. And one thing that prime ministers have, which other kinds of politicians don't have is hiring and firing power. So he, Johnson was hired to do something, but Johnson then hires everyone else. By not sacking Gavin Williamson, how does the balance of risk play out there? So if you sack Gavin Williamson, you make competence an issue because he, he wouldn't be sacking Gavin Williamson because Gavin Williamson has adopted a position outside of the ideological framework that the Johnson government wishes to uphold. He would obviously be sacking him for being useless. So then you make uselessness an issue. On the other hand, if you don't sack him, given that he does seem to be a bit useless, you make uselessness an issue. And do you just write it out then? I think the issue of loyalty is what seems to matter a great deal for Johnson. And in that sense, you know, he is remarkably competent, I suppose. If you think about the way the cabinet functioned under Theresa May, she was unable to command the loyalty of many of her ministers in a very systematic fashion, was constantly being undermined. I think Johnson has managed to put together a more collegiate form of government where the loyalty is much stronger. Uh, and that seems to be the, the rationale for whether he wants to, to keep people. And I think he's much less vulnerable than we seem to be suggesting here, because 
we shouldn't forget, you know, winning an election in the way that he did was quite a feat coming after May's abortive attempt to, to strengthen her position by having an election. That's what successful politicians do. And I think he's going to be able to command a lot of loyalty and support for some time based on having done that. I think we're kind of missing something here, and that is is that the Prime Minister's been extremely ill and that that is part of what has happened um, during this pandemic. And in the in the course of that, uh, he effectively showed his fear of some certain members of his cabinet by the fact that he made Dominic Raab rather than anybody else, um, including Rishi Sunak, Prime Minister, acting Prime Minister, during that time that um, he was in hospital and then recovering. And I think that what has happened during this pandemic has certainly weakened his position within the Conservative Party for a Prime Minister who won a general election with a majority of the Conservatives hadn't seen since 1987, less than a year ago, to have been subject to as much criticism within the Conservative Party as he has been over the last months. And for that to be coming to a man who clearly has had issues with recovering from his illness, I think that we should not take it for granted at all that he's going to be Prime Minister by the time the next general election arises. If you want to find links to our earlier episodes about Boris Johnson, they're in our show notes, or we will tweet them at tppodcast underscore. Coming up on Talking Politics, we're talking with Jill Lepore about what happens when you cross Cambridge Analytica with Mad Men. And we're talking to Robert Harris about history, fiction and counterfactuals. Do please join us for all of that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Uh, At the moment, I'm finishing my friend John Wilson's book, India Conquered, which is a history of the British in India, uh, and I'm enjoying it. Uh, very much indeed. It's the um, again in August while I was slowly recovering from being hit on the head. I wasn't really reading much at all. So to get almost to the end of a big book is uh, actually feels like an achievement. Me, uh, what am I reading? I'm reading Craig Brown one two three four about the Beatles. I've just finished the Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, which was my summer read. And, uh, <laughs> and we are I, uh, now in late summer. <laughs> it's a bloody long book. Uh, I thought it was going to become my annual read. Your winter it's, read. Uh, yeah. uh, it's a fantastic book. It's a fantastic book. I was just going to say it's maybe the best 19th century novel, but that's a big... Uh... No, that's one piece, but The Brothers Grants Off is, is special. There's Middlemarch. There was also Middlemarch. Oh, Middlemarch. Uh, I'm reading... John Darwin's The Empire Project about the British Empire and I'm um, rereading Bob Dylan's Chronicles. I say I've been in a big Bob Dylan lockdown. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.